0: Welcome to HB Media Minute, a podcast from Haynes and Boone that focuses on legal trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and First Amendment law. I'm Nathan Koppel, the Director of Media Relations for Haynes Boone. Today's podcast will focus on two pending U.S. Supreme Court cases that raise legal issues related to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Which is a legal framework that protects tech companies like Google, Twitter, and Facebook from liability for third-party content, such as YouTube videos or Twitter and Instagram posts. It's a critical legal foundation for the internet, but the law has been controversial, seems to grow a little bit more controversial every year. Critics argue that, the, that service providers need to bear more responsibility to vet and police the content they host. Today's discussion, I think, is particularly relevant in light of Elon Musk's recent acquisition of Twitter. Musk seems to favor a relatively laissez-faire approach to content moderation, but he has also famously said he won't let the site become a quote-unquote free-for-all hellscape and that he does plan to create some kind of content moderation oversight board for Twitter. All remains to be seen. Our guest today is Haynes & Boone Associate Michael Lambert who is based in our Austin office and <clears throat> excuse me is a member of the firm's intellectual property practice group. Michael's practice focuses on media entertainment IP and first amendment litigation. Michael was a guest from multiple podcasts last year discussing discussing section 230. He's followed the law very closely and today he's going to talk first off about these two pending Supreme Court cases, one involving uh, against Google, the other against Twitter. Michael's going to offer his thoughts about how the court may decide those cases and what is what a decision could mean for the future of the internet. And I'm also very anxious to get Michael's thoughts on those rulings in light of the, the Musk acquisition of Twitter. A lot of good topics here, but before we get started, our disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. All right, Michael, will welcome aboard.
1: Hey, good to be here. Thanks, Nathan.
0: Well, start, please, if you would, just offering uh, listeners a a quick background on the origins of Section 230.
1: Right. So Section 230 was enacted in 1996. So during this time, obviously, is the infancy of the Internet, um, and in the 90s, courts were trying to figure out how are we going to regulate speech, who is going to be liable um, for speech and, and, and conduct on the Internet. Um, and in particular, there were conflicting views of whether online platforms should be responsible for third party content, meaning content from you know, other users, people like us that post um, on the Internet. And you know, in one case, a court found that an Internet service provider was not liable for third party content, because it did not review the content before it, post, it was posted online. It basically let anything that anybody submitted be present on the platform, and the court held that, in that case, it was not liable for third-party content. But another court, also in New York, uh, held that an internet service provider was liable for third-party content when it when it actually reviewed the content to ensure that it met its standards. So that sort of let platforms try to figure out what. What decisions to make, right? You know, should if they moderate content to ensure sort of a safer space in a more, um, you know, a, a better environment for its users, then they may be liable for third-party speech, which is just going to cost them a lot of money in litigation. The other option is to do as little as possible, um, because then you may not be liable for speech as the court held, but then your platform is going to be filled with spam and hate speech and other information that you may not want. Um, so in order to sort of to sort of solve this problem, uh, Congress enacted uh, Section 230, which is part of the Communications Decency Act in 1996. Um, in In the intent part of the bill, the Congress wrote that Section 230 was meant to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet, unfettered by federal or state regulation. So Section 230 has two main provisions that are important to know. The first is an immunity provision, and that says that websites and online services are genuinely, genuinely generally not liable for third-party content, except for a few exceptions, such as intellectual property matters and federal crimes. The second part is a safe harbor provision, and that protects good faith decisions to block or remove content that is deemed objectionable. Um, the immunity provision, the first one, has been the most important aspect of Section 230, And so far, you know, since 1996, courts have really broadly interpreted it to shield online services from most lawsuits that are based on third party content.
0: And it really feels like it's been critical to the growth of the Internet. And I've I've seen figures, I don't know, that Facebook maybe has more than a billion users and hundreds of thousands, maybe uh, or or more videos are uploaded to YouTube every minute or, you know, the crazy statistics like that. And it's impossible to imagine uh, these companies being able to moderate all of the content, but I guess section 230 does empower them to do some content moderation.
1: Right, exactly. It, it It lets the platforms choose what they want to do, right? And, you know, part of that is also that there are so many different platforms out there. So if you want maybe a more friendly family environment, you can go to that particular platform that may censor you know, that type of speech. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want a more open-ended platform, you should be able to choose some, choose another platform. So basically the idea was sort of to create this market in which there was options out there. Um, one of these sort of issues that have come up is that you know, there has been somewhat of a consolidation and there are sort of limited options. Um, but you know, when this was enacted in 1996, it was all you know so early they just wanted to sort of invigorate and to sort of uh, encourage different platforms to come um to come up and that actually is what exactly what's happened
0: yeah it, you mentioned consolidation which kind of gets into my next question which is that the the law seems in some ways to make a lot of a common sense and, and uh but it's really got a growing And a bipartisan list of detractors. A lot of Democrats don't seem to like it. A lot of Republicans don't seem to like it. So why so much criticism of Section 230?
1: Yeah, I think in part because the Internet has changed so much since 1996, right? This law was made at such a different time. You know, now speech is the predominant form. The way we communicate is through the Internet, right? Online speech is the predominant form of communication. And also, yeah, these platforms that have hosted online speech, they have a larger share of the market power. There are options, but there is still a lot owned by Meta. Meta owns Facebook and Instagram. Then you have you know platforms like Twitter and TikTok and YouTube. Um, but there is those are sort of the majority of where the speech um, is coming from. And I think the last part, which is actually probably most critical, is the public is now aware more of the potential harms of the internet and in online speech, right? We've seen testimony before Congress about the, the problems of, you know, Instagram causing eating disorders in individuals and all the other harms that can come from the Internet and social media. And I think that's sort of the biggest impetus for people to think that change is needed um, to deter those type of harms. When, when you've like got you said, the, leader, like, of the
0: uh, leader of the free world tweeting on a regular basis uh, when, when Trump was uh, – you can't, can't claim that the social media – it's all just a – kind of a fun trivial pursuit there's a real right yeah
1: yeah and you know it's like you said it's really interesting because not a lot of whole not a lot of things in these this day and age that is bipartisan but both sides of the aisle are critical of section 230 you know from the republicans point of view um they they think that section 230 allows the platforms to have too much say in their moderation um they believe that these platforms are censoring speech and you know, and blocking users um, unnecessarily. But on the other side, um, it's more of the harm aspect. You know, a lot of Democrats think that there's platforms should be doing more and that there's too much of this harmful content on the internet and that um, they should be monitoring it more closely.
0: Sure. Has there been any progress or, or serious efforts made to kind of remove or dial back some of these Section 230 protections?
1: In short, no. Um, you know, there's been it's been bipartisan <laughs> criticism, but there's really no bipartisan solutions because this is a really tough problem yeah. and it's a problem to solve. You know, so since then, since 1996, Congress has repeatedly tried to pass bills that address Section 230, um, but they haven't gone anywhere just because of because I think in part because the Democrats and Republicans have different problems with Section 230. They both have a issue with it, but they haven't figured out what is a common solution. Um, But also, you know, other branches of the government have also had their issues with it, um, but don't have as much control to actually change it. Obviously, Donald Trump and also current President Joe Biden have had both expressed their desire to remove Section 230 um, protections. And courts have since become a little more skeptical of Section 230. I think, again, because of the changing infrastructure of the internet and the more um, awareness of the harms. Um, You know, one example is at the Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas has repeatedly criticized Section 230, not in actual decisions that have changed the law, but just basically opining on Section 230 when the court has been asked to review Section 230 cases. So uh, Justice Thomas made his views really clear that he believes Section 230 protections go too far. You know, in one case, he actually he wrote that courts have relied on policy and purpose argument to grant sweeping protections to Internet platforms. So he thinks their protections are just really sweeping too broad. He's also repeatedly encouraged the court to review Section 230 in order to address what he considers to be the proper scope of Section 230. And that's sort of what is happening now that's, that the Supreme Court has heeded his Justice Thomas's um, you know, suggestion and had, is decided to actually review Section Two Hundred and Thirty for the first time in the history of the law that's been around for more than twenty-five years. So I'm sure, it,
0: uh, yeah, a lot of people will be following these cases closely. Well, t- tell me about them. What what issues are these pending Supreme Court cases? What what issues are raised?
1: Yeah, so there are two cases. Both come out of California. One is called Gonzalez versus Google. The other one's called Tamna versus Twitter. And they genu- generally ask whether social media platforms should be liable under the Anti-Terrorism Act, which is a federal law, and whether content that's amplified by, by algorithms by these social media platforms deserves protection under Section 230. Mm-hmm. So in the first case, Gonzales versus Google, the family of a man that was murdered by ISIS in Paris sued I, Google.
0: Uh, Mike, I just want to linger there for one second. So the question is not, you know, is Google or Twitter liable just for this whatever third party content is at issue here. It's it's a little more specific. It's our it's really focusing on on their algorithms and the role that those algorithms play in promoting content and whether 230 immunity protects those uh, those decisions. Is, is that right?
1: That's the question presented. Okay. But as you know, the court could go beyond the scope of that. And that's why I think a lot of people's worry. But yes, it's, yeah. a rele- it's a pretty narrow question that they're asking, um, but because this is the first time the Supreme Court has taken a look at this law, you know, they there could be dicta in the opinion that drastically changes other aspects of Section 230 that have nothing to do with the Anti-Terrorism Act or have nothing to do with algorithms. So mm-hmm. that's the concern. But yeah, the question presented is pretty narrow. in Tell me a little bit about the facts of the cases.
0: I think you were. so Yeah.
1: So the first one, they're similar, but a little different. So the first one, Gonzalez versus Google, um, somebody, uh, the family members of somebody that died by ISIS um, sued Google, which owns YouTube. um, And they're basically trying to hold YouTube liable for their son's um, death. And they basically allege that Google contributed to the ISIS attacks because. Um, YouTube amplifies ISIS videos and recommends ISIS videos to other users through its algorithm. Um, and Google said, no, Section 230 actually protects these decisions and protects the algorithm decisions that are made by algorithms as well as us. And the Northern District of California did agree with Google and found that these decisions made by algorithm are protected under Section 230, largely following Ninth Circuit precedent, um, which is where California sits. But in the second case, Tamna versus Twitter, similar sort of facts, the family of somebody that was killed by ISIS, this time brought claims against Twitter, uh, Google and Facebook and alleged that they contributed to his deaths by using, by allowing ISIS to use their platforms with little or no interference. They basically, you know, they believe that these platforms should be Censoring this type of content and moderating this type of harmful, um, har- harmful content, claiming that the platforms were liable for materially supporting ISIS by allowing this content on the platform, and the Northern District of California in a separate opinion um, dismissed those claims, um, saying that the plaintiff failed to allege that there that that these platforms proximately caused. Um, the death and the harm um, that was that their son, you know, faced by by his death, um, and then the Tamna decision did not address Lee, did not squarely address Section two hundred and thirty, but more just determined whether the plaintiff pleaded a, a proper case under the law.
0: So at least through the Ninth Circuit, these companies have have sidestepped liability, and now their their fate. Sort of rests in the hands of the Supreme Court, um, and it's, int- it's just very interesting in cases because and- it seems like one of the criticisms of Section 230 is sort of centers on the idea that um, terrorist organizations do use these platforms to enlist followers, and that and uh, that companies really need to do a, a good job, a better job of policing content by by organizations like ISIS. Um, so anyway, let me let me ask you then to look in your crystal ball. How do you think the the Supreme Court justices are going to decide this, these cases?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting, um, you know. So I think it just before I sort of get into that part, um, I think it's just f- just be important to note that, you know, Section 230, um, according to Google, in these cases and in the Internet platforms, they protect the decisions that are made by algorithms. They believe that is the same as other editorial decisions um, that are made. And it's important to remember that section 230 protects publishers. That is um, the word that's used. So the language of the statute says, you know, no provider or user of an internet c- computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Um, that is famously known as the 26 words that created the Internet because of the importance of of this law. And according to Google, the online platforms serve as publishers when they curate and display third party content um, to other users. And in their arguments in the Supreme Court, Google is going to lean on the federal appellate courts that have reached that same conclusion. But On the other hand, the um, petitioners in this these cases say that Section 230 um, does not apply, they likely will focus on the text of the statute and what it actually means to be a publisher. Um, they're gonna probably argue that under the text of Section 230, it really only applies to traditional editorial functions, like deciding whether to publish you know, an article in the newspaper or and such like that, not necessarily these content recommendations that are made through algorithms. And they also will probably argue that courts so far have sort of ignored the meaning of publisher and instead have applied Section 230 um, too broadly. Now, as far as sort of opining of how the justices may come out, um, Justice Thomas has made his opinions very clear already through um, his, his, his opinions that he thinks Section 230 is too broad. He hasn't obviously opined in the context of the um, Anti-Terrorism Act or or algorithms in particular, but it's clear that he's very skeptical of Section 230 and is worried that it does um, provide too much immunity for platforms. Um, I think it's gonna be really curious about how the other conservative justices are gonna um, look at this case, especially Justice Gorsuch, who's sort of the leading textualist on the court. I think all the justices, but especially the conservatives, are gonna actually go to the text. They're gonna to wanna to look at those 26 words and they're gonna dissect it. Um, and I, again, I think in part is because this is the first time the Supreme Court is seeing this, this law. They have never reviewed a section 230 case. So I think they're gonna start at the basics and look at what the words of um, the statute um, mean. But even with that text, I think there is gonna also be some other considerations about how the internet's changed so much. And to sort of look at the case through the modern lens, how much the internet has changed since 1996, and also considering all you know the harms that can come out of content on the internet. So I think there will be a practical aspect of their decision as well. That will be something that they'll think about. The justices will probably ask a lot of questions, like, what if this happens, um, et cetera, to sort of see how their decision may impact uh, speech or other content online, but I definitely, but I, I really am. I, I think the text of the statute is going to be pretty important here.
0: Let's assume that there is a definitive ruling here to strike down section 230. Uh, and, and of course it may be a much narrower decision um, or they could sidestep it, I suppose, but what would happen? What would happen if, if there were a far reaching ruling uh striking down the 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 statute
1: yeah i think it can go in so many directions i mean if the court does affirm the ninth circuit's decision and find that section 230 applies Mm -hmm. really nothing's going to change because that's sort of the law right now so that would just maintain the status quo but if courts if the court finds that claims based on recommend recommendation recommended content are carved out of Section 230 immunity, uh, that's gonna lead to increased exposure to liability for online platforms and likely ca- cause them to rethink how they promote and how they recommend content. You know, so certain risky content may long may no longer be recommended if they are going to be held liable um, for that. You know, if the court has a more, you know, broad sweeping decision and really sort of changes the meaning of Section Two Hundred and Thirty by looking at the text um, that could have a lot bigger implications beyond just the algorithms, um, you know. But any decision that does, except for affirming the Ninth Circuit, is likely going to cause courts to change how they assess Section Two Hundred and Thirty going forward, and also how the social media companies operate those businesses.
0: Well, we're definitely going to need to have you back here once the, ju- once the court rules to, uh, to analyze uh, analyze the opinions. Um, I, I can't end without asking you about Elon Musk and his acquisition of Twitter. I mean, if he wants it to become the sort of unfettered content for him that he seems to favor, I would think he'd need very robust uh, 230 protections. Do you think these, these rulings will be particularly, will follow particularly closely uh, in light of the Musk acquisition?
1: Yeah, I'm sure so. It's just added a lot more attention that is already on on um, them. You know, it's really interesting because, as you know, Elon Musk has long complained that Twitter centers too much speech, right? Mm-hmm. That Twitter should be banning so many users, you know, Donald Trump, for example. And he instead sort of wants the platform to allow for free expression, regardless even if that information may be false or otherwise objectionable. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the many consequences of allowing more speech is going to be more illegal content on Twitter but musk you know as Twitter CEO is not going to want to be legally responsible for that illegal content And right now you know section 230 largely immunizes him in Twitter from that liability. But if section 230 is removed, he will be held responsible you know Twitter his company for that illegal content. Which would surely hurt, hurt the bottom line of Twitter, and not something that he uh, would like.
0: Yeah, and it's just interesting that he um, his company is now the defendant. Uh, and I guess in both of their one of these cases or both cases, so he would have followed it closely anyway, but particularly
1: so now. Um,
0: well, Michael, any other thoughts before we sign off?
1: I think it's just a really interesting case to follow. Anybody that sort of cares about the internet and what the internet ecosystem may look like going forward should follow this case and 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 see you know what the court makes of this law on its you know first impression.
0: Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Really really awesome overview. I want to invite listeners to visit uh, the firm's website at hainspoon.com where you'll find our media and entertainment litigation practice page which contains links to the media entertainment and first amendment newsletter. And also on our website, you'll find all of our HB Media Minute podcast. Uh, Thank you so much and look forward to our next episode.